Hello. Welcome to the book festival. I hope you didn't get too wet on your way in. Um, my name is Sarah Grady. I'm the director of the children's and schools programs here. So my job all year round is to read kids books and then invite great authors like this to come and talk to you. It's pretty much the best job in the world. Um, but today we are here with, let me see if I can get the slideshow to work. <gasps> We're doing Catching the Spark is the name of the event with Sophie McKenzie and Graham Marks. Ta-da! That was about all I can do with PowerPoint, so I'm really impressed with myself. Um, if you have phones, please turn them off. I think the guys will be taking questions at the end, so hold them till then. And afterwards, next door in the signing tent, we'll do a bit of a book signing if there's any leftover questions you didn't get to ask or if you bought books from home or from the library. So I will hand it over to you guys, leave you with the remote. Have a lovely time. Hi everyone, it's really lovely to be here. Um, this is my first time at the Edinburgh Book Festival and uh, what we thought we would do, Graham and I, uh, in our session here is to look at where ideas come from. That's what catching the spark means, that's what that's all about. It's where the ideas that turn into our books actually come from. So I write two kinds of books and the, the very first kind of book that I write is thrillers. And Girl Missing was the very first thriller that I wrote. It was uh, uh, published about two years ago now. And it's the story of a girl called Lauren who knows she was adopted, but doesn't know anything about where she came from, anything about her life before she was three. And she's now 14 and really curious to find out. And that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell what the story is about, her journey to try and find out some answers about her past. So where did the idea come from? Well, it came because one day I was browsing on the internet um, and I came across this missing children's website. Uh, there were loads and loads of missing children on this website and one in particular caught my eye because I remembered this toddler, his name is Ben Needham, going missing when he was two years old, years and years before. And I, I was looking at the, the poster and this, as you can see, there's an age progressed picture of, of how he might look now. This is actually one that I took off the internet recently because Ben Needham still has not been found and he would now be 18. But when I was doing this, he would have been um, 14. Almost exactly the same age as the character that I used in the story. And, and I was trying to work out how, um, what on earth it would be like for him. I mean, I just suddenly sat there in front of my computer thinking, what if... Ben Needham, this 14-year-old, this, uh, was sitting in front of a computer like I am now, looking at these two pictures. A picture of himself uh, as a toddler, and next to it, a picture of him as he might look now. And what would he think? What would he do? Would he think, that could be me? Is that me? And then what would he do about it? And I thought, my God, what would I do about it? What would you all do about it? So I looked through a few more pictures. Um, now, a few more missing children. Now, this is, uh, the reason this one's up there is because you can't, probably can't read from, from there, but the case type, lost, injured, missing, it, that's the terminology they use, and that's exactly the terminology I used in the book. When Lauren goes online and she finds out, uh, and she sees this picture of herself 
as a, as a toddler and wonders if that's her. The age progress picture next to it that she goes and finds looks like it could be her. So she starts wondering, um, was she stolen from her birth family? And this final picture uh, that I, um, that, that this is the one that in many ways, although Ben Needham was the case that really hooked me in and where I thought, what would it be like if you saw a toddler uh, and you thought, could that be me? This was, these were the pictures that really stuck in my mind when I was thinking about Lauren, the character that I actually used, uh, I created for the story, made it a girl, basically not a boy. And this is very much how I imagined um, Lauren might, might look, although she has blue eyes. And you can see all the information there that it gives about how old you are now, your hair, your eyes, um, where you went missing from, and all sorts of information. So if you, if you were to look at the first chapter of Girl Missing, you would see that in it, Lauren goes on the internet, she has a look around um, at, some, at this missing children's website, and she finds this picture of a toddler, and she wonders if it could be her. And these are the, 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 the actual missing children whose own stories made me think up um, the start of Lauren's story. And I then just took the, the idea from that and, and it was all, the rest of the book is all about, well, what will Lauren do to try and find out what the truth actually is? So that's the, uh, where the idea came from for Girl Missing. And I'm now going to hand over to Graham to start Thank talking you. about his first book. I'm Graham Marks and uh, I write, again, two sorts of books. I mean, I write, generally speaking, I write thrillers, but I write for two different age groups, um, one slightly younger than the other. Um, and this is uh, a book, uh, Strange Hiding Place, which actually originally came out 12 years ago. It's the wonderful thing about publishing is that actually books can go out of print, but they don't disappear. And people can, if you're lucky, like I was, bring them back to life again with a brand new cover and a brand new look. And in fact, this came out originally 12 years ago as a trilogy. And, I, and they asked me um, to edit it down by 50%, which I nearly died at the thought of. But it came out, it's now a much, much tighter, better, crisper book. But where did it come from? This was a picture I saw. And it's the universe. It's someone's idea. Some scientist's idea of what the universe look, could look like. I'm standing there looking at this thing going, well, I know it's not got edges, and they, I don't know why they did that particularly, but what if somebody from up here, a, a highly advanced civilization up here, knew that there was a little blue-green planet down here somewhere that nobody else really knew very much about? What if they decided they needed to hide something. What a better place to put it than so far away. This place is so huge, so vast. And I wanted to write a, a piece of science fiction that allowed me to play around with distances that are unimaginable, technology that hasn't been invented yet. The, the great thing for me about science fiction as a writer is that you can't tell me my ideas are rubbish because they haven't happened yet. It's only, it happens in my head. And this idea, this thing of that the spark, if you like, the, the strange hiding place was what a strange hiding place Earth would be if you came from somewhere way, way up there, billions of light years away. And I went off on that because I'm a big fan of the 14 times and th all these stories about UFOs and I, I kind of want to believe um, that there are other people out there. I, the, the only thing that puts me off is that they only ever appear to people who you don't trust 
um, when they do la land on Earth. But I want to believe in flying saucers. I want to believe in all that kind of stuff. And I was able, when I was writing this book, to sit down and think about all my ideas about where could they come from, what could they be like, what were their technology, what could they possibly do. And, and was taken by the fact that my father-in-law, is actually, who's now 93, was around when he was a kid, he saw the first aeroplane, a biplane, a thing made out of string and bits of wood fly past. And I thought, what must he think now, 93, you know, 90 odd years later, that's happened to him? How, how technology changes, and I could do this in this book. And the other thing I wanted to think about when I was writing this was the whole concept of aliens. And this is the kind of classic grey alien that people use, you see in all the movies and uh, Close Encounters and stuff like that. But I didn't want my, I don't, I don't know why, that, that is what people say they see. But I didn't want my aliens to be that kind of alien. I had a completely different kind of alien and a completely different situation for the whole thing. But what it allowed me to do, that one idea, that one moment of looking at that star, if you like, star map of whatever goes on out there. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing when you try and put your head around something like that. Gave me this can massive canvas to write this story of a boy who actually discovers that he's the repository in his DNA and the DNA of two other people uh, on Earth. It's an, enough information to kill a planet. And that's the story of uh, a strange hiding place and where the idea originally came from. And now it's my turn to hand over to Sophie for her next book. This is a completely different kind of story. The other, the other sort of book that I write, apart from thrillers, are relationship books, boy meets girl type books. And as you can see from the cover, there's all sorts of clues to the fact that that is that kind of a book. But it's not a girly, mushy book because it's actually told from the point of view of Luke. And Luke's thing is that he really, really, really likes this girl called Eve. But there are two problems. One, she's older than him, she's in his sister's class at school, and two, she's got a boyfriend. Okay, so two big problems. Now, the pic next picture I'm going to show you, <laughs> I should really issue a bit of a health warning before because it's not pretty. Okay, this, this, <laughs> oh, I can use the red laser thing, can't I? Because I don't want to get too close. That is my brother, yeah? And that <laughs> he would have so so kill me if he knew I was using this picture I have to tell you and this is the girl as you can see she's very pretty the girl who was in my class she's called Amanda she also has no idea her picture is being used like this I don't even know where she is so um, I'm sure she wouldn't mind though I mean she looks really nice in that picture doesn't she unlike my brother uh, anyway she was in my class and uh, he is younger than me and I mean, God, no, why did she go out with him? I mean, look at her and him. Anyway, he did. He did. And that's where the idea for, the, for Six Steps to a Girl, the story about Luke and Eve, um, the, well, the, there are actually three books about them, um, but that's where Six Steps to a Girl, the original idea, came from. Whereas the girl missing idea was based or inspired, if you like, by a real-life situation, but to do with a boy who I didn't know, had never met, whose family I had no idea about. This story was inspired by a real-life situation that I, that I witnessed. Um, as I say, my brother going after this girl who, who was older than him in, in my class at school. Um, I think we should move on from that picture now. Okay, 
this record, this is a seven inch um, single, uh, and it's uh, basically relevant to, the, relevant to Six Steps to a Girl because uh, the other part of the story, it, the context in which Luke falls so hard for this, this girl Eve, is that his dad has just died and he's really in denial about it. He hasn't come to terms with it at all. And they weren't getting on when his dad died. And his dad left him a bunch of old singles from when he was a teenager. And this you know, could easily be one of them. Um, and so it's not the in this case, it's not the specific record that counts. It's the fact that uh, his, his dad has left him all these singles. And Luke, for most of the story, doesn't understand why. But when you go and look at the book, there, there are lyrics quoted from each of the records. And they are actually very, very relevant to the action of each of the chapters. So in a way, what the dad was trying to do was say, look, I know I came from a different time and a different place. But you know, the things that I cared about as a teenager weren't that different from the things that are bothering you. And we are actually more alike than you realize. And by the end of the story, uh, Luke's kind of come to terms with the fact that his dad dies. And the story of Luke and Eve actually continues in two other books. Because, and the reason being that I loved being inside Luke's head so much, writing as, the, as a 15-year-old boy, that I didn't want to stop. So I went on and I wrote another book, which is called Three's a Crowd, which is also being published, and then a third book to finish off the trilogy, um, which is called The One and Only, which is going to be published in February next year. Okay, so now we move back to Graham. This is one of my um, older books, um, Owning a Place, Going Underground. Um, where, where did it come from? Well, I can tell you exactly, exactly where it came from. Omega Place. Uh, I used to go past, this is at the bottom of Caledonian Road um, in King's Cross in London, and I would go past this twi at least twice a week on my way to a job I had in the West End. And I just thought it's a horrible, disgusting little um, uh, cul-de-sac. It's, 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 and with such a lovely name, I just thought, oh God, what a great name, Omega Place, and what a horrible, horrible thing. That's why I remembered it, I think. And it stuck there with me for years and years and years as a great title for a book, but I had no idea what it was. And one of the things that I always say that it makes me sort of fairly hellish to live with, I don't throw things away because I can't. You never know when it's going to be useful. I mean, this was just lodged in my brain as, a, as, a, as an idea, that a title that one day, hopefully, I'd be able to use as a title for a book, but I had absolutely no idea. And then, this started to happen around London. I don't know whether it's the same up here in, in Edinburgh and around, but in London, these bloody things follow you everywhere. And that is the moment when it really started to click for me, was when I was walking down a street in the West End, and one of these things, I saw moving and following me down the street. And I thought, well, A, what have I done? You know, why, why are they looking at me? And it was very definitely me, because there's no one else around. And the other thing was, who's at the other end of that? Who is actually doing the old Game Boy thing, moving the, 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 the sticks and following? Who's that person? Who's given him or her the right to do that? And starting to form, that's the, that's the kernel of the idea. That was the, the kind of moment when I started to think all about these things, because when you go around, that was a, a photograph I saw, I was walking down the street at night, and that shadow, for me, said it all. This is real kind of 1984 territory, except it's, it was 2005 when I took that picture. Um, 
what's going on with this surveillance society we live in. And Omega Place became an organisation, a kind of guerrilla street organisation who were very, they were, they were on the surface, that's what they were about. They were about exposing the fact that we're being followed and looked at by these things all the time. And it, the idea built up and built up and built up. And as ideas do in a way, it's like planting a seed. I planted this seed and it flowered over about, I suppose, a three or four month period with me adding bits. And it wasn't until I'd actually figured out how I was going to make this thing come alive. I needed um, a character, Paul, my, my character Paul, up in Newcastle. He came from Newcastle and did that thing that a lot of people do to decide that he's going to come south because London just seems like so much better place to be. And on his way, his journey intersects with that of Omega Place. Um, and he gets involved with their, their life and he joins them. And, but running as a kind of undercurrent to that are the police who are trying to find out who these people are. So from a road sign that just wouldn't leave me alone and then being followed by a camera one day a few years later came an idea that began to obsess me. I had to go onto the internet and learn, I didn't learn how to do it, but I had to figure out to sound like I knew how to, um, what a squat was really like, because they live in squats, these people. Um, I had to find out all sorts of things, like how to break into cars and hotwire them, and because they lived a very feral life. Um, and I learned a huge amount about what's going on, and there are, there are underground organisations out there doing things, not particularly about um, surveillance, but it seemed to me, and I still, my main worry when I was writing this book was that the, the fuss and furore that actually is going on to a certain extent about CCTV and surveillance would just go away. But it hasn't, luckily for me in a way. It's still current, it's still there, and it's spreading around. So it's my current, it's the, my, my politics book actually, I think is uh, the thing. And because everywhere, these were appearing up around London all the time, the posters would be stuck up. Um, you can see that one's a bit old because Tony Blair was still in, uh, in charge at that point. But, you know, we are, there being watched and so that's where that particular idea comes from and I now hand over to Sophie. Okay. Um, Blood Ties is another thriller like Girl Missing. Um, it's not about the same characters but it's a similar style of story. Um, now you saw with Six Steps that the, um, that the idea came from uh, a very particular, specific, real-life situation, and then the music was a, was a, was a, was also part of the idea because I really loved um, I love listening to music and I listen to music while I write all the time. And the idea that that part of the idea came up more gradually. Now, blood ties. It's almost impossible for me to tell you where the idea for blood ties came from because unlike those other two books. There was no specific one thing that kind of sparked me off. So in terms of you know, the title of, of, of what we're doing here, Catching the Spark, there was not one spark. It was like lots and lots of little sparks firing at different times. And I carried the idea for Blood Ties around in my head for months and months and months before I actually wrote a word of it. So I'm going to talk about um, so, some of the, the, the sort of three different things where, uh, that, were, that are relevant to that, to where the... Um, idea did come from, the way it gelled together. But just to explain, because Blood Ties is my latest book, it's only just come out. Um, the story is the story of Rachel and Theo, so the book's told by those two narrators alternately. And they don't know each other at the start of the book, but their paths soon cross when they discover that both their fathers uh, used to work 
for a mysterious geneticist, yeah, scientist who specializes in genetics, who was killed by a terrorist organization who was against his work on cloning. And this terrorist organization now goes after Rachel and Theo. And as the story goes on, they get into more and more danger because of that. Um, so the book is very much about cloning. That's really something a subject I've always been fascinated in. And this cat, this very sweet little kitten, is actually a clone. She's in fact she was the first cloned cat. Her name is Cece. So she's a copy of um, another cat. She's a genetic copy of another cat. I had no idea before I started researching this that you could clone pets, cats and dogs, but in fact it's quite commonplace to do it now. It's not difficult, well I mean obviously it's very difficult technology, but it's not um, unheard of if you have enough money, because it is a very expensive thing to do. Um, so this is Cece, the world's first cloned cat. And you know, I've always thought of cloning as something that will happen in the future, but it, it, it isn't something that will happen in the future. It's with us right now in terms of uh, animals. And this, which is uh, a newspaper article, is, is, is actually about a claim that some scientists made that they had cloned um, the first monkey. And primates, monkeys, apes, as I'm sure you know, are in an evolutionary way much closer to humans than cats and dogs are. So every time you know, a, a more sophisticated kind of animal gets cloned, you're getting closer and closer to human beings being cloned, which I'm absolutely sure will happen in your lifetime because I think the science is very nearly there. Now, in, in fiction, cloning humans has always been presented as a very, very evil thing. And, and, and also as, uh, as, as a way of creating like an army of replicants of an existing person who will just do whatever that existing person tells them to do. And now I'm no scientist, but what I've read about the subject suggests that when you clone, if you were to be able to clone a person, what you would actually be creating is more like an identical twin for, for that person. And this is really the thing that interested me, where the idea for blood ties really came from, was the thought that if you were a clone of another human being, what would that do to your sense of who you were and how you fitted into to, to your family and into your culture, into your society? Because if you're a clone of somebody, who are your parents? Are they, well, they are genetically the parents of the person you were cloned from. So in addition to the parents you already have, the ones who brought you up, you would also have the, the you would also have to deal with the fact that your parents were the parents of whoever you'd been cloned from. So a whole new set of things to try and get your head around, all of which I find um, fascinating. And I was thinking if, if you discovered this when you were, say, uh, aged 14, when you were sort of working out who you were anyway, because um, you're no longer a child, then it could be a really difficult thing to have to deal with. And that's very much what I wanted to write about. So that's kind of an abstract place where um, the idea for blood ties came from. But it also came because I wanted to... Um, I, want, I mean, obviously, it's, I, I'm not writing about an abstract idea. I'm writing out particular characters. And this picture had... This is quite an old picture. I don't know... Do you recognise who this is? He's a bit older now. This is Prince Harry. And what happened in this picture, which had always stayed in my mind, like for years and years, he, has, he was coming out of a nightclub and somebody tried to take his picture. 
And that's in the background, you can see his bodyguard trying to hold him back from punching whoever the photographer was. And for a long, long, long time, I had this idea in my head that I wanted to write about a boy running away from his bodyguard. And what intrigued me was, why would you run away from your bodyguard? Why would you try and um, uh, get away from the person who's protecting you? And Theo, in Blood Ties, does that. That's what the first chapter of the book is. He's trying to run away from his bodyguard. And what you're asking is, why? What, what, what does he want to get away from? Um, and then the, the final part of where the idea for Blood Ties came from was to do with its setting. Because I, 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 um, this is uh, the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, DC. Now my brother, who you just saw in the previous book when he was a teenager, is now all grown up and very respectable. And he lives in Washington, DC. And I was out there visiting him while I was working on the idea for Blood Ties. And we went to the Jefferson Memorial and part of the Declaration of Independence is in there, which begins something like, um, we hold these uh, trees to be inalienable, that all men, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know, have a right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And it made me think, well, what if you're not considered to be properly human, if you're in some kind of subcategory, like clones might be put into if they existed. So all of that, the, the fact that I wanted to write um, a, a book that was largely set in the States where I was on holiday and enjoying being in a completely different culture and also that, that particular place where this Declaration of Independence is and what that means in terms of how you fit in, how you belong to your, um, to your own culture, all of that uh, and your rights as a human being as well, all of those different things merged together and ended up as blood ties. Cairo, for me, was, a, was a, uh, a book that I can tell you exactly where that started, in the British Museum. Um, not I won't lie to you, it wasn't that exact statue. I went back to try and find it, take a picture, and they'd moved it somewhere else. But in the British Museum, one uh, lunchtime, because I used to work around the corner and I could pop in, um, and I always, always loved the Egyptian bit, um, I came across a something very like this. It was actually a dog, not a lion, a statue, a, a, a carving, a sculpture. And I found myself standing in front of this thing. Now, it says don't touch, but no one was looking. And I just, I couldn't help it, but this, because this thing was so lovely. I mean, it was, it's a beautiful stone bit of carving. And I, I just stroked it. As I say, it was a dog, not a lion. So I stroked it like you would a real dog. And it just felt fantastic. And I suddenly realized I had, I had a light bulb moment. Um, that my hand was where the hand of the creator, the, the sculptor, had been 4,000 years ago. He'd stood there, probably a he, maybe a she, had stood there and their hand had been there. Everybody, anybody who makes anything has to smooth it down and feel and touch and wait until it feels finished. And it was a real shuddery moment for me to have that kind of connection over 4,000 years of history. Now, call me mad, but that's what I felt at the time. And the idea that I, that you could, it sort of brought it all back to life for me, this whole thing. And so the spark for that idea was bringing back to life the mythology of a dead civilization. That if you, if gods being gods, I say at the beginning of the book, they don't die. If the need come back, comes back, so does the belief. And this all started out actually not as a book, it started out, it was going to be a computer game. 
Um, and it got to the point where it was very, very near. We were close to contracts and the whole thing was being planned out. And because uh, behind every good computer game, there's a good story. And this, in this computer game, you were going to be going around finding the, the, the different Egyptian gods. They have a pantheon of gods that is fantastic, absolutely wonderful. But the, as often happens, it never came to anything. It went off and died. And it, this house of cards that we've been creating just collapsed. And I put all the work away and kept it in a drawer until the moment came when somebody, an editor, asked me, got any other ideas? Up came Cairo and I went back to look at the whole thing and decided, yes, I could. I could take this idea and I could make it work. But what I had to do, while it's called Cairo, it's not actually based on the real city of Cairo, which is that's a picture of. Um, but there are, because I'd been on a, on, a, on a trip to Cairo and seen a lot of things there that had really fired my imagination, I, one of the great things about doing the job that we do is if you, if you can, you can go places um, to go and look at the realities that are going on. I took myself off for a trip to Takaro to, to see the things properly that I'd seen before, to get them in my head, to find out what was going on there. And when I was there, I came across, this is just a dog in a place called the City of the Dead, which is um, a necropolis. It is a city, it's a, it's a big, huge graveyard that the poor live in in, in, uh, in Cairo. And my character, uh, Stretch, has a dog called Bone, and that's Bone. I met Bone when I was there. So a fantastic uh, character. And you saw things. This is a 21st century city, Cairo. It's a capital city in the, in the 21st century. Yet, we're looking at something, a site that you could probably see thousands of years ago. Not much has changed in, in very many respects. And that was part of the, the kind of layering of the ideas that I was getting for this book because it's quite complicated. I had to world build. I had to do something that um, somebody called the other day. It's world building. You take, you're actually starting from the ground up, digging the foundations for a civilization and you're building it all up. And that's what I was doing, what I did when I went over there and looked at all that stuff. And while I was there, now hopefully you can see this. I was in a museum in Karnak and I took a photograph on my phone. Again, I wasn't supposed to do it. Um, but this is the head, that's the chin, nose and skull of the mummy. And I took the picture on my, my uh, phone, flash, got back to the hotel, had a look at it, and that's what came out on the screen. Except on the thumbnail, that was there. So with my, <laughs> with my digital camera, I took a picture of the thumbnail, which is what, for evidence to prove. Because my wife had said, you didn't ask permission. <laughs> the gods weren't on your side when you took this picture, because that is what I got when I did it. Um, so there were spooky things happening for me when I was writing this book as well. But it, so I got to, to have a really fantastic journey, um, all from doing what I shouldn't do, touching a statue in the British Museum. So there you go. That was the first, Graham showed me that picture, you know, the, 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 of the, what's it called? Mummy. The mummy. Loads of times, well, two or three times at least. That's the first time I actually saw the head. So that was really, sorry, that was really exciting for me. Um, okay, now this is a rather boring visual um, because this is a work in progress. This is what I'm, I mean, I haven't written nearly as many books as Graham. Um, I've had the three that I've just told you about published and the sequel to Six Steps. And this is my, um, uh, the book I'm working on at the moment 
and the basic idea behind it has come out of my fascination with uh, people who have powers, people who are psychic, who claim to be able to do all sorts of things that the rest of us can't do. Um, ESP, as you probably know, stands for extrasensory perception. So people who can read minds, predict the future, um, move things without touching them, people who have a te telepathic, telekinetic abilities. All those things fascinate me. And the idea for this series of books, because this is what I'm writing, four characters, each telling the story for one book, four books in total. Um, the idea came because I want powers. I would like to have superpowers. And I went through a, uh, a period where I was just asking everybody I knew, if you had a superpower, if you were able to do something or be something, or do something really, what would you, what would it be? What would you, what would you be able to do? And people say things, I'd like to be able to fly or I'd like to be invisible. And I picked the four things that I would like to be able to do most and decided to give those to my four, those particular qualities to my four characters. And the reason they've got these, these qualities is because um, they have been, they have been, they, they have a gene for them. You know, you can have um, genes for to certain types of illnesses that predispose you to certain types of illnesses and also that predispose you to being talented at something. Well, I thought if there's a gene for this and there's a gene for that, why shouldn't there be a gene for being psychic, for having ESP, extrasensory perception? So the first book is all about um, the, the first character whose name is Nico. And his particular gift is to be able to move things without touching them. So you can see in this picture there's a hand who's making that fork bend. And, and that's what he's able to do. And this is the first book which I'm actually in the process of writing at the minute. It's called The Setup because it's setting up the whole series but also Nico gets set up by various people through it. It's another thriller in the same vein as Girl Missing and Blood Ties. So that's Nico's particular um, ability. And then, as I said, there are four characters all together, and each of them appear in every book. And the other, um, the, the next ability that I was interested in. Oh, look. No. Thank you. Um, was was uh, being able to mind read. Um, and this is just a picture of, of uh, somebody who's sort of focused on their head and able to. Uh, what I imagine looking at it is that they're able to, um, by focusing on, on um, somebody else, read into their mind. And the character of Dylan has this ability. And what he can do is if he looks into your eyes and holds your gaze for a few seconds, you'll be transfixed. You won't be able to tear your gaze away and he will be able to see into your mind. And you can try blocking him and different people will have different levels of success in blocking him. And Dylan is not, he doesn't, he's not very comfortable with his gift. Nico loves his. He loves being able to move objects without touching them and he shows off wherever possible. Dylan is much more reluctant to make use of his book, of his, his gift. And that, but that's what he can do. He can look into your mind and see what you are thinking and you can try and stop him and you may or may not succeed. Okay. <laughs> Do you think? Do you think that's what it is? I only have one more picture too. That works. Oh, there we go. Um, okay. 
Alicia is uh, the third character, and what she can do, which is another thing, as I say, uh, as I say, all these things come from uh, abilities I would love to have. What Alicia can do is put like a guard around herself, around her body, and stop herself from being hurt. And as you can see, the illustration of this here is somebody walking on broken glass. Now, Alicia would be able to do this without getting hurt, provided she knew that the glass was there. Um, so this is where she's vulnerable. If she knows and can prepare, nothing can hurt her. But if you come up behind her and she doesn't see you, you can, you know, she won't be protected. So it's all about, she needs to know and have that second to put the shield down in front of her body. Um, now the, the fourth gift uh, is, I haven't put the name of the character up here because they don't actually know that they have this gift until right at the end of the first book. But that's what it is, protecting the future. And of all four gifts, I would, you know, this is the one I'm most torn about because I would love to be able to see into the future. Who wouldn't? To be able to see what's around the corner. But at the same time, if you think about it, it would actually be an awful thing to be able to do because you, would, you could find out all sorts of things like when you're going to die, how you're going to die, um, and, you know, where your life is going, which might be great, but it really might not. And, and then what do you do once you've got that information? So that's the fourth character. She uh, is able to see into the future, although you know, she doesn't actually realise this until right at the end of the first book because she doesn't know what the dream she's having actually signify. So it, it, it isn't, um, it's still, I'm still working on it. I'm still writing the, the book, the first, um, the first book of this series. And not all of it is thought, thought through. There's no title for the series as a whole yet. Though, as I say, the first book is going to be called The Setup, I think. Um, but that's where the idea came from, basically because I'd like to have abilities that I absolutely don't have. And so I thought the next best thing would be to write about characters who did have them. And what they then go and do with them is, is, uh, is, is use those abilities as a group to go and stop people, get information about and stop criminals. That's what they do with the powers eventually. Okay, so... I'll hand over now to... Right, it's my last book here. This is actually, I delivered to my publisher uh, 10 days ago, and I'm still waiting to hear what they think, which is what they do to you, and it's really a terrible, terrible thing to keep someone hanging. I feel like I'm hanging by my thumbs, waiting to find out whether they like it or not. I Spy is what I've called it, and again, this is something that when you've got projects at this stage, you just don't know. They could, tell, they could tell me they want to change the title, but this is my working title. The reason why I've got this cover, this cover here, uh, Black Mask. Black Mask is a, a real um, pulp magazine from the 1920s in America. And my character, Trey, is obsessed. This is what he reads morning, noon and night. He loves this sort of detective fiction. And his, his mind is completely filled with the stories of private eyes and Seamuses and uh, God knows what else. And he gets taken on holiday by his dad. They live in Chicago. And he gets taken on a holiday. His mum's gone off somewhere else and his dad's taking him on basically a kind of holiday come business trip. And um, the reason why this, this story started and came into light into being was I'd always wanted to write a spy story. I kind of didn't want to do an Anthony Horowitz um, sort of clone story. Um, I set mine back in, in, it's actually set in 1927, and the bulk of the uh, action takes place in Constantinople, which is what Istanbul used to be called until 1930. Um, because it was 
a hotbed of intrigue and, and, uh, and spying. Uh, possibly still is, I don't know, but it was then. And I thought, what a great setting for the kind of story I could write um, about that kind of situation. Because this is the kind of thing, these kind of noir imagery. This is actually drawn by a friend of mine, John Bolton, who's a, a brilliant um, comic strip artist. And it's a character that, um, that we had uh, years ago called Oscar Hellion. Um, but it's secrets, schemes, plots and intrigue, it, it, what I wanted to write about. And actually what happened was that my publishers um, got the idea that it was going to be have an element of kind of Indiana Jones to it as well, which I didn't know, they didn't tell me, they got that idea. They told somebody else when they were describing the project who luckily told me that's what they were expecting. So I was able to kind of fine tune my book knowing what they were looking out for. Constantinople 1927. Um, an incredible place. I, I did some research, found loads of pictures, got myself really into the whole feel of what the place would be like to visit. Because they get there, they go down to the city on the Orient Express, uh, which you could then take from Paris all the way down through Europe and end up in Constantinople, uh, which is this, whoops, no, back, there you go. It's, this is what's called the Bosphorus. That's the Golden Horn. It's a natural harbor, one of the world's great natural harbors. And this is the East, and that's the West. This is Asia, this is Europe. It's the only city that does that. It's one city, the bulk of it is over on the west side here, but this is one city that straddles two continents. An extraordinary place. Um, and a lot of the action takes place in my book in this place here called Galata. Um, there's a bridge across it here. Um, a wonderful, wonderful place, um, which I went to because I wanted to have a look at what it looked like. And I'd seen some photographs that showed that it hadn't changed an awful lot, actually, in the intervening years. And I took myself off and went and had a look around at Istanbul 2008 because I needed to get the kind of information. To, I love to walk the streets my characters walk down. And you know, without a time machine, I, you know, I can't go back to the real time but you can get an awful lot of feel when you go back and do this and I think it adds to the smell sound and taste of the book that I'm writing and hopefully from the images you get from it when you read it so that's our story those are our sparks um, we have time for questions and um, I think there's going to be people with microphones if you want to shout things at us anything this at all is a question What's your question there? Yeah. If you could be a character in one of my books, who would you be? If I could be a character in one of my books, who would I be? I've never been asked that question before, which is actually a bit of a... Should I answer first, then? Yeah, go on, you think a yes. Go on, you think. I wouldn't be any of them, because they all get into terrible, terrible danger, and their lives are at risk, or they get broken-hearted because their love lives are a disaster. So I actually wouldn't be any of them. I am most like, though, two characters that I've written, which I guess is also the answer. I'm really like Chloe, who is the sister in the Luke and Eve books. You know, Luke's based on my brother, so it's not surprising his sister is a lot like me, or how I was when I was a teenager. And Blood Ties, my new book, the character Rachel is also quite like me. At least all the, all the insecurities that she has are like, you know, all the things that I used to be really, really insecure about too. So that's my answer. Well, having had that time to think, I, I think that I would like to try to be Stretch in Cairo, because Stretch gets to have a god talk through him. 
And I just think that must be, to have that moment when you're taken over by a power, like uh, he's taken over by the god Horus, who's the god of the sky in Egyptian mythology. He's the guy who looks perfectly normal up until his neck, and he's got the head of a hawk. Um, and I think that would be pretty cool to do that, so yeah. At the back there. Oh. oh. Who were your favourite authors, like when you were young and now? Well, okay, For right at the very beginning. I mean, I have to say, and it's funnily enough, she's come top of the tree again very recently in a, in a, in a Costa poll. Enid Blyton basically got me completely addicted to, to reading adventure stories. I, I went through the whole lot, and um, thank you very much, Enid, because it just got me completely obsessed with that kind of writing. And the moment I'd done it and I'd had enough of The Famous Five and The Secret Seven, which is, you know, wasn't very long. I went off and I found, I just went looking for other people who wrote that kind of thing better. Um, and there were people, I don't know, um, John Buchan and... Uh, did you read those Willard Price? Never did books. Willard Price, but that kind of thing, I got completely taken off by her and went searching, and I still do, I still look for people who write that kind of stuff. And Elmore Leonard is, a, is an American crime writer who, if you like, Elmore Leonard writes adult Enid Blyton. There's stories that, you know, page-turning, rip-roaring stories. And she started me, and then I just go out and I look for all kind of... Carl Hyassen, like another American um, crime writer. I'm a big fan of crime fiction. Um, and I think I put it all down to Enid. Um, who I also liked uh, a lot when I was um, younger. I guess my favourite book probably when I was a child was The Railway Children. And I like... Um, books about families, books about relationships. I love the Laura Ingalls Wilder series of books. Now, um, I read masses of, of uh, teen fiction, and I really like a writer called Kate Can, who, um, who writes kind of love story stuff. Uh, and I'm also always on the lookout for the kind of stories that I write, which are the kind of stories that I want to read, which are basically thrillers, exciting adventure stories, but with like a love story or something caught up in the middle of it too. So um, another writer that I really like, a uh, more recent writer, current writer, is Anthony Horowitz. And I mention him particularly because when I was trying to write a plot, which I found very difficult to do, very hard, I went and I dissected three of the Alex Ryder books, you know, those um, books with that character kind of going through all the all the stories going on his various adventures getting into danger and other and I tried to work out how he had constructed his plots to see what I could learn from that so I, I did enjoy those books but I was reading them also to try and work out how he how he made the plots so you know move along so fast and so well there was a girl who had a question yeah, over uh, there yeah. what made you start writing books um, I started writing quite simply because I loved reading and, and I think uh, I basically love stories so that's why I, I like writing because I like stories and the experience of reading a story or reading a, a story that you're enjoying at least is that and I'm sure it's the same for you whenever you read something that you're really enjoying you get caught up in it you know you, you, you just get caught up in the world of the story you really care about what happens to the characters and that's what that's what when I discovered that writing a book feels the same way you get caught up in the world of the story you care about what happens to the characters that's when I that's when I realized how much I like doing it and and that happened when I was well it happened in two at uh, two points really it happened when I was very little 
um, as soon as I knew that I'm, I loved stories and reading, then writing was just followed on from that. But it also happened when I was much, much, much older and I got made redundant from my job. And I realized um, when I started going to this creative writing class, how I rediscovered how much I loved doing it, um, how much I loved writing stories, how much I loved not just reading and stories or watching films that had exciting stories, but creating them myself. So that's really what got me Got, got, what got me into it in a more disciplined way rather than just thinking, yeah, I love doing that, but thinking, actually, this is what I want to do. This is really what I want to be able to spend as much of my time as possible doing. I used to be, I trained as a graphic designer. That's what I'd, my job was for the first half of my career. I was a, a graphic artist, work, actually working in publishing as a designer. And the reason why I started writing was because a manuscript got put on my desk. I was in charge of a studio for a publisher and a manuscript got stuck on my desk. Um, and when I say manuscript, I do mean handwritten manuscript for a children's picture book. And it was garbage, it was absolute rubbish, but it was gonna get published because the guy who'd written it was a very famous adult author and it was just gonna get done because of who he was. And I kind of made the mistake of saying out loud to the people in my studio, even I could do better than that. So when I got made redundant about six months later, um, I had time on my hands and I thought, well, put your money where your mouth is, have a go. And I did. I wrote my first novel, which did get published. And um, so I kind of proved to myself that I could do it and I could do it better. It didn't make a lot of money, um, but it kick-started me. It just, it proved that I could do it. And it set me off in a completely different direction. So. Yeah. <laughs> Lob it. Did you write stories when you were a child? Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. I actually did, wrote, I mean, I, I wrote lots of stories when I was a child and I wrote um, poems and, and all sorts of stuff. And I remember particularly when I was about, probably about your age, I wrote a story uh, in my, um, in, for my English class and it was a really gruesome story. Uh, about these people who got locked up in an asylum, and they were like made, they were put in a uh, in isolation, and they started going mad. And this one character attacked one of the other inmates. And I wrote, I remember this really clearly. I wrote about how he gouged out his eye and then squeezed it between his fingers, so the eyeball oozed out from his fingers like toothpaste. And my teacher was really appalled that I'd written this because it was so like gruesome and sensational. But afterwards, some of the other people in my class asked me to, to read it to them, that particular section. And that's when I discovered how much fun it is when people like what you've read. Mm. That's really, really nice. So yes, I did write stories. I wrote poetry. From about the age of 17, 16 or 17 until I was about 21, 22, I wrote poetry a lot. And I got a couple of books published by a small press, and, but nothing else happened. I, didn't, I wasn't really kind of... I wanted to be a designer, that's what I wanted, and poetry was quite something I did. And, but I never threw the poems away, and when I was writing Cairo, I came to a point in the story where I wanted to, to kind of make a point about something, and it reminded me of one of my poems. And I got it out and looked at it, and I thought, actually, this is still okay. Um, and I put it in. I made the girl remember she'd read this poem in a book. And um, my editor 
<laughs> my editor thought it was actually written by someone quite famous. So I was really, really pleased that, that uh, I'd, I'd got it in there and I'd finessed it. She didn't know, know it was me that had written it. And um, it kind of proved to me that actually I had writing talent way back that I didn't really know I had. Um, but it wasn't actually storytelling at the time. I was doing too many other things and poetry had that thing of it's over very quickly. I mean, it takes quite a long time to do, but it's done. You know, you've got something right there and then um, to do. So that was me. It was poetry for me. I think we can do about one more question. I think we've got mm -hmm. time for. Let's find out. Up front here. Oh. What was your favourite subject when you were in school? Art. Absolutely, that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to draw, and I, that's all I did do. I mean, I just drew a lot. Um, and as a result, got pretty lousy um, GCSE and A-level results. But, you know, got through it okay, and went to art school, uh, because that's all I ever wanted to do, was draw. Um, and it was a great shock to me to discover that I'd actually got bored with it um, at some point, and, and had to find something else to do, and was lucky that I could actually, I'd got this other talent to do, to do um, writing. I hated drawing, I have to say, because I was never any good at it. And um, I didn't like my art class at all, because I would try and draw something and it just never, ever came out like I wanted. And I guess also then I didn't work very hard at it either. So my favourite subject was English, because it was the only place where you were technically allowed to daydream, where you were allowed to make stuff up, where you didn't have to learn a load of facts. So that's my answer. I did see somebody with a question there, actually. Quick one, quick one more. Just one. Yeah, come on. She needs the exercise. Yeah. It's um, if someone if someone offered you to have your book made into a film or TV series, what one would it be? Um, well, I guess that would be their choice because that's a very expensive thing to do. But I think the be if you're asking what would be the best thing that I've written that would make a film, I think it would be one of the thrillers, Girl Missing or Blood Ties, because film's really visual. You have to be able to see lots of stuff happening for it to work, whereas novels are great because you can get inside people's heads. That doesn't tend to work quite so well in films, so I think Girl Missing or Blood Ties would make, um, would make good films because there's lots of action in both those books. Well, my first teen novel I wrote about five years ago, five or six years ago, was called Radio Radio and I wrote it as a screenplay. If you, if you look at it, if you see the copy, it's still in print thankfully, um, it's, book as a, it's a novel as a screenplay and so you, the whole point for me was that I wanted the reader to actually start looking at the pictures in their head and they would do this because they would be given the instructions so the whole thing would be exactly like a proper screenplay for a proper movie. And the kind of other side of that coin was my really clever idea was that that would mean that anybody from a TV company or a film company would go, oh look, it's already a script, we could make this. Which never happened, which I'm just so pissed off about. But it, it was a great idea and it worked really well as a one or, you know, I can only do that trick once. Um, I still would hope, I would love that one to be made into a movie because I think it would make a, a great one. Frankly, if anybody came up with anything to do any of my books, because my, my real, the thing I really want to be able to do is sit down in a, in a cinema for the lights to go down and my idea to come up on screen uh, like that. So hopefully one day. And I think at that point we've got to say thank you very, very much. Yeah, um, thank you.